We are so excited to announce that we're going to be running a new motherhood support group. Starting September 8th, Sina and I will be leading a 10-part group to help reduce stress and cope with the challenges of new motherhood. This workshop offers new moms with babies from zero to one weekly group sessions that cover issues such as body image, the impact of motherhood on relationships and identity, mindful parenting, and self-care. The new motherhood support group will provide a space for connection, safety, and empowerment as we embark on the journey of parenting together. You will leave this workshop with a better understanding of motherhood and friendships with other new moms. The workshop will start September 8th and be on Thursdays from 12 to 1.30 p.m. You can register on Eventbrite, link to our website and Instagram at lovelink.co, or email us at info at lovelink.co if you want to learn more. Hope to see you there. This is an interview we conducted with my father, Rich Simon, two weeks before he died on November 10 of this year. He was the editor of the Psychotherapy Networker, which is a publication for therapists seeking the latest clinical wisdom. Um, and he also, um, as part of that, ran a conference for, for therapists every year. He was beloved by countless people and had many, many close relationships with friends and with mentees. He was also an incredibly loving and supportive father and a major influence in my decision to become a psychologist. As a child, uh, he, he was a bit of a child himself, um, but as, so when I was a child, he, um, he was one of my favorite people to play games with, to have fun with. Uh, as a teenager, he was probably the most embarrassing person I knew. Um, and as an adult, he really became a great friend, teacher, and was, was always ready and willing to help me process life's ups and downs. I think I developed a very skewed expectation about people growing up with a father who had such a high level of curiosity and emotional generosity. I've found in my life that most people aren't very good at asking questions and getting curious, but that was really his specialty, making people feel like they really mattered. I can remember in high school and college, um, sitting with him and, and with my friends and talking about whatever the latest crisis was that was occupying our minds. And it, it seemed like it really mattered to him. He took it seriously, which uh, was unusual for adults. He was not a perfect parent by any means. He was sometimes very stubborn, obsessed with work, um, generally intensely private about himself, which, which frustrated me. But his appreciation for life and, and the people he loved was really unmatched. Throughout his life, he suffered from bipolar disorder, and it was almost like clockwork. Every decade, he would get a little bit too high, it would get manic, and then crash into a place of severe depression and hopelessness. He had two major episodes, uh, one when I was 11, and then again when I was 20. Um, thankfully, both of those times, he was helped with electroshock therapy, ECT, and that was really able to pull him out of the void. But then when it happened for a final time four years ago, he couldn't get out of the depression. You know, over the last few years, he went on a kind of treatment journey of sorts. Uh, he tried medication, ECT, talk therapy with various therapists and, and psychiatrists. He visited a shaman uh, and tried different psychedelics, but there was nothing that provided relief. 
uh, and he ultimately chose to end his life this November at the age of 71, which is a plan we now know he had in the works for the past two years. As his child, I have a lot of mixed feelings about his decision. I'm furious with him for betraying his commitment that he would not take his life, and I have no words for the tremendous sadness of losing him. But I also feel some relief on his behalf because I know how much he suffered. Um, I don't think I'll ever come to terms with his choice. I don't even really know what that would mean. But I can accept that he couldn't stand to exist in a reality with no sense of purpose and a constant feeling of emptiness, shame, and hopelessness. Even in his darkest moments, as we recorded this interview, I think his loving and generous spirit shines through. And I'm really thankful we have this recording to honor him at the end of a very full life that, uh, in the words of Rich, only took a sad turn coming down the home stretch. This was something that hadn't existed before, and here we were. We were all making these discoveries. There was a new way of understanding human behavior that was coming into being that just hadn't existed before, and we were all discovering it together. podcast uh-huh welcome right back at you <laughs> thanks for joining us how many years have you guys been doing your thing it's it's getting to be uh, a real enterprise here we've yeah. been what have we been doing it for it's three years three years yeah yeah three years yeah not as much as the psychotherapy networker all right you'll catch up you've got 40 40 more years on us <laughs> And we wanted to interview you because because you've been in the field for 43 years and had this bird's eye view of psychotherapy for, you know, almost half a century. Oh, my God. That's, that sounds impressive. <laughs> half a century. Oh, dear. Well, and also you've been so influential in helping so many therapists um, craft their ideas and and give them a platform to express themselves through the magazine, but also through the conference. How many people come to the conference every year? It's like 4,000? Well, we, we would have had 4,000 if, yeah. if the world had been more cooperative. We would, have set some, we would have set our record. I don't think there are going to be many live conferences with 4,000 people moving henceforth. So maybe tell us a little bit what the Psychotherapy Networker is, because I think for maybe some of our audience, they may not know. What is it and what are its origins? The, the, the field of psychotherapy really began to gather steam in the late, late 60s, the early 70s. You were insured as a psychotherapist. A lot of 
people were coming out of graduate school who, who had been influenced by the 60s. They didn't want to go into business. They wanted to, a different kind of, uh, they were looking for a different kind of professional path. There was a real uh, boom in the field of psychotherapy. Thousands of people wanted to become psychotherapists of different kinds. But there wasn't really um, the tradition within the field and the, the training and, and the, the, the platforms of communication were all rather academic. There wasn't really something that spoke to the moment-to-moment -moment experience of being a psychotherapist. And so there, there was sort of a, a gap there, and we stepped into it. So you had a lot of these very engaging personalities who had stage presence and who really had a following. Virginia Satir, Salvador Mnuchin, uh, Haley, Jay Haley in his way, R.D. Lang. So there were a lot of, uh, a, a lot of personalities who people knew from a distance but they really didn't have a sense of uh, like a, having a, an access to it. And so uh, I think the, what the networker did was it began as this newsletter and it became a, a way of um, having conversations, feeling like you were in conversation with these people who seemed so interesting and so captivating from the stage as they were doing their presentations. And, and so we were kind of a, a much less formal way of um, making a connection to the people who were the movers and the groovers in the field, the people who had interesting ideas and who were beginning to develop their own following. So that was, that, that was a big part of it. It felt like a magazine uh, might cover a topic or a personality as opposed to a formal academic publication. And the idea that we were kind of a, a stand-in, asking the, the questions and responding to the, the ideas that were coming into the field, not as in an academic way, but in a way that was uh, much more informal and much more like the, the kind of conversation you might have with a friend as opposed to something that was um, uh, a class or the, uh, or, or the various other ways of means of communication that we at that point had developed. So it was uh, an informal, uh, chatty, informal way of being part of a community that was just kind of discovering itself. People were coming into this community at, this, at the same time. This was uh, something that hadn't existed before, and here we were. We were all making these discoveries, and we were hero-worshipping some of the, the kind of the same figures and struggling with some of the same ideas and trying to see how they apply to ourselves. So it was, it was very personal. We were trying to figure out our own families. So it, uh, it, it had that sense of, a, of a, a community. You didn't have to join anything. 
Uh, it wasn't anything anything like that. It was just kind of a, a opportunity for a shared discovery of a, diff- a different way of looking at ourselves and on our families and at, at the world and this whole notion of systems and understanding systems and uh, like there was a new way of understanding human behavior that was coming into being that just hadn't it just hadn't existed before and we were all discovering it together. How did you uh, get access to these people? Because these are some pretty heavy hitters in the field of psychotherapy still. I mean, you know, they're, they're people that are taught in graduate school and you were just kind of out of graduate school yourself when you were starting the networker. And right. I'm curious, like, how did you even make contact with these people? Well, that was my question to myself it's like well who will talk with me so the 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 first person was um who i interviewed was murray bowen and so i wrote him a a a note we this was before the age of email i wrote him a note uh and asked for some time for an interview and when i got this response which was just in a few days which like today of course seems like eternity it felt like the Pope was answering, it felt like this, uh, like this, en- this enormously important person. Meanwhile, it was just a little. This was a little corner of the world, a little corner of the mental health world. It wasn't the workshop scene, the, the whole mental health education scene. It hadn't emerged yet. It hadn't become this thing, this business, this industry. Uh, and 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 so it was just it was the advantage of being at the beginning of something. Now every it's when I look up on the internet, everyone's interviewing everybody else, and it's you know it's uh, it's crazy. It's just everybody has something to be interviewed about. It's sort of like a standard format. Back then, it was just like uh, this was you know here's your chance to have a more personal conversation with Salvador Mnuchin, or you, you wanted to uh, have a sense of, of Virginia Satir, not in front of 500 people, but um, just, you know, a one-to-one conversation, Virginia Satir. You're a pioneer. Yeah. 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 So it, was, it was just, it hadn't developed yet. It hadn't emerged yet. It didn't have an identity yet. Uh, there, there weren't publications. There were just academic publications. It was, so it, there really wasn't a, a format. There wasn't a way of, for the profession to communicate to itself. And in a, ver, our, a very primitive way, that's what we, we did. You know, we had a mimeograph newsletter. We, you know, we, uh, we, we just kind of got the word out. We, you know, the internet hadn't really emerged. So it was, it was all uh, the very beginning, a kind of very, very primitive beginning of how do you, how does a group of community, how does, how does a, a community of people who share the same interest find a way to communicate with each other? And that, that's what we did. But, you know, it makes so much sense that it became such a success because I think you tapped into something that therapists really need. 
we're all working in isolation. We all have our kind of rooms that we're only with our patients and we're feeling disconnected. We're not really sure if we're doing the right thing. And you created a real, I mean, your own system. Like mm-hmm. I know when I read the networker, when I go to the conferences, it's like you step into a world where there's a new togetherness. There's an us. It's an us. And yeah, I think that's just so yeah, profound. We're, we're isolated, and then suddenly we, yeah. we created a, uh, an us uh, so, that that began that then continued to evolve. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because you went to school to train to become a psychotherapist. You graduated, and but then kind of transitioned your career at some point from being a therapist to now bringing therapists together. And I'm wondering how, I mean, what was that like to, to stop working with patients? And, and was that something that you wanted or was that a natural evolution? How did that happen for you? It seemed to come more naturally to me than being a therapist. I liked writing about it. I liked capturing the excitement of it. I liked... The, the, the journalistic aspect, it seemed there, like there were so many stories and all the stories of and, and all of the experiences that people were having in their therapy sessions, uh, suddenly we legitimized uh, that this is something that could be communicated about. This was uh, not, it, it, that we could, you could write about therapy not in a kind of a formal and academic way, but in a, a, a way where you could tell the stories of these crazy sessions you had or these, these um, exciting moments, you know, interesting and, and eccentric clients you might have. So there was just so much that was going on that was, um, it was just storytelling. I always had liked storytelling. Uh, and so this this was uh, an opportunity for people to tell the, the to tell their own stories and to hear the stories of other therapists about what goes on in family therapy and to and family therapy in particular was exciting because you had a lot of people in the room the dramatic things were happening therapists were doing things that uh, at that point were hadn't been done before you know, ex- exciting things, getting people up and out of their chairs and moving and interacting. So it was, um, it, 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 there was a sense of something new was in the air and we were, we were capturing it. So as your daughter, <laughs> I know that you uh, grew up with parents that, you know, weren't the most psychologically minded, um, weren't, you know, interested in, in psychology, you didn't talk about feelings in your family. Um, and I'm wondering what made you pursue psychology and, and get into the mental health field? Like how, who sparked that interest in you? How did you even think of that as a possibility? Well, as, as with most things that happens in therapists' lives, it was my mother, you know, who, who was somebody who had a lot of uh, psychological difficulties, and I had appointed myself with, I guess, some help from her and maybe some other members of the family, that I was going to be the therapist, and I was the one to, to talk with her and try to understand what was going on. So she was a 
she was depressed and she was an obsessive personality. Uh, and so I took a shot at being uh, the therapist for some period of time of trying to help her uh, get, get a handle on her these uh, very vivid obsessions that she had and her preoccupations and her conversation with one of her friends and then she there was some question that she had, either she had asked or hadn't asked and she just felt uh, she just couldn't let it go. She either had she had done the wrong thing of one way or another, either by asking a question or not asking a question or whatever. And so I was I was the one who was often trying to help her understand why it was so important to her, or what I my, and took took a crack at being a, a teenage uh, you know um, psychotherapist. What did you say to her? What did you ask her? Or or how did you, know, you talk I, to her? I tried to be reasonable with her and uh, find out why, why these concerns, why whether some friends of hers, why the wedding that that particular, uh, the daughter of that friend, why it took place in one city rather than the other, and she should, should have asked or she shouldn't have asked or uh, whatever it is, some odd question would become just completely uh, upset. She'd become obsessed with it. Uh, So I would spend a lot of time trying to help her to grapple with that and uh, understand that and decide whether she should call back or not, whether she should... Is, is she should should let it go, or whether you know she would, if this if this was a completely crazy thing, or or not, and uh, and and so I was the one who would spend the hours, but you know, everyone else was just tired of this and just felt like this was this was nuts and this was uh, completely um, completely crazy, and uh, I just felt. Bad that she was that she that she was so preoccupied and, and thought maybe I could help her with it. Mm. So you were yeah. So you were the therapist to her, and then went into the field. It's kind of that sparked your interest in psychotherapy and helping people. And what? well, actually, no. It was I, I. I was a miserable failure at doing this. <laughs> I made well, I bet, no difference yeah. whatsoever. She spent her time and went in and out of mental institutions and so on. Uh, and so I was decided the last thing in the world I wanted to do was uh, to be a psychotherapist. So, um, and, and actually what I did sort of makes sense now, like a lot of things make sense in retrospect. I became an a English major and then I thought I was going to um, be a go to, go to graduate school in uh, in English in English literature. But then you saw the professors in the English department. They weren't so ha- they they weren't so happy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I, I then you I, had to be their therapist. Well, no, they were they were a little too buttoned down for me to be their therapist. But it didn't seem like that was a you know a, a happy thing. To do so, I just I got interested in literature, which I was quite 
you know, was quite interesting and was quite compelling. And I did, and I was, I was very interested in it. And I was interested in it from the viewpoint of uh, being a literary critic, which is a little bit like being a psychotherapist. Until and then I realized that my professors weren't very happy, and that wasn't something that I was uh, that I wanted to do. So I wasn't quite sure what I was, what I was, what, what was going to happen. And then I uh, I graduated from uh, uh, as as an undergraduate. I graduated from college, and then I picked up. Um, a book called The Divided Self. So there was a whole um, movement, the anti-psychiatry movement, and there was a whole um, interest in psychology. And there was, I remember reading one one day, uh, I, I, I had graduated from college, and I was... Uh, I, w- I was reading this passage from this book called The Divided Self, which seemed to so capture my experience of feeling a, a kind of a sense of a split in myself between um, who, who I was and um, who I was trying to portray myself as to the world. And I remember this one, uh, th- this one passage in this one chapter of the book, where Lang was describing how we're all split off from ourselves, and he he, he was saying that um, if if when we really look inside ourselves, there's we have this there's a sense that we're it's it's like we're in a, a snowfield. Uh, in which there are no, in some very private area of our psyche, where there are no footprints other than our own, and that's, uh, and, and that's that's the human experience, but it's just not ex- acknowledged in that way. And so it was just seemed like a huge revelation to me. At, and it, it seemed like almost like in a split second, I said, it kind of returned to being my mother's therapist. It was uh, was returned to this interest in 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 psychology and depth psychology and kind of a, this inner world that we jo- don't generally talk about with each other. And then in an instant, it was like, oh, okay, that's that's what I want to do. That's l- l- I want to be a psychotherapist and. It, it seemed like in just in a, a matter of a few moments, that was uh, the revelation. That's that's what was that's that was the path. That was the path for me. That's so rare. Those light bulb moments of I'm decisively going to just choose a career based yeah. on this one passage, this one revelation. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm I'm curious, yeah. Sina, because you know, as a daughter of two therapists one being here, <laughs> how it was for you. Because, uh, you know, Rich, it sounds like you kind of had this circuitous path that makes sense and kind of went back around. But Sina, you you grew up with two therapists. Yeah. Um, how did you, how did that impact you and your decision? Um, I think I rejected the idea of entering the field of mental health in any capacity when I was growing up. Um, Like I always found 
the dinner conversation, very interesting. You and mom would have lots of interesting people come to the house and talk about their clients or what they were, you know, what they were experiencing or a lot about themselves. And I always found that interesting, but there was a big part of me that rejected it. And I remember my, my mom and, and you asking like a lot of these questions about how I was feeling or what I was experiencing. And I was like, ugh, this is too intrusive. Are you trying to be my therapist? Like, stop. Um, so it wasn't until after undergrad that I, that I became curious about psychology. And I think I became more aware that actually it was an area I was interested in. I was very curious about people. I kind of played the role of the therapist to a lot of my friends, and it just seemed kind of like a natural path. But it wasn't until I had done several years of rejecting it that I kind of could return to the idea. And I'm very grateful now, looking back, like I feel like I, I'm, I'm grateful for all those conversations I had about mental health, our family dynamic. At the time, I found them very intrusive and annoying, but but um, now they now they feel <laughs> yeah. more useful, you know, having uh -huh. had that experience growing up, yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, something I think about is uh, differentiating myself now. You've been so successful in the field, and mom has also been very successful in the field. So, so there's a lot to... And you're getting there, kiddo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen. Brought to you by Non, spelled N-O-N, the sound meditation app for iPhone, where no two sessions are alike. So what is psychotherapy? This is a question I don't, you know, I think a lot of therapists struggle even to define. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, having so many years of talking to therapists, interviewing therapists. And I love that this is the first time we're asking this question to someone in the three years of our podcast. <laughs> you know, right? right? Yeah. Is that really, is that, is that right? No pressure, no pressure, Rich. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's become many things. So it's, it seemed when I was first uh, getting into the field, it was as if, there was a thing called psychotherapy. And it had something to do with discovering a, a deep truth or deep truths about oneself, especially in relationship to one's family relationships. And, and there was almost this mystical 
quality to it of, of uh, delving deeply into kind of the, the, the core of who you were and the, uh, of the, the forces that uh, have ma- had made you whatever you happen to be. And it seems what is what evolved is over the years is more and more of a thing of there are psychotherapies. There are therapies that are very practical, focused on solving practical life problems that uh, don't necessarily deal with the past, don't necessarily deal with long-term exploration uh, going back to early experience that give you the help you uh, answer questions about who you are it it feels like as the the, the field has proliferated and we ha- there are more and more variations on the theme of psychotherapy that it's um, a form of exploration and various forms forms of exploration some more practical some more akin to kind of a almost a religious kind of exploration than others uh, and it's let less of less of a single a single thing I think more recently I think people have become focused on identifying the, the traumatic experience or, or experiences that they've had in their life and understanding what those were and how they have formed how, the, how they formed you how they how they shaped the direction of your life you and think that's more of a recent um, shift focusing on trauma uh, tra- trauma definitely I think has been the been the area of most interest over the last I don't know, 15 or 20 years, is the, 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 the role of trauma in people's lives, the role of uh, technique that address trauma. I, I remember going to a conference back in the early 80s, which was about the uh, veterans from, from uh, the Vietnam War. And it was the first time that I had heard the term uh, PTSD. And also, is very. It was also the first time that, around that time, that PTSD became uh, part of the, uh, the the diagnostic manual. Before that, I and I had gone through all my graduate training, and I, I we had never used the term trauma, or or uh, or PTSD. So it, it was. Um, you know, just there was just kind of a sense of, of ferment of giving names to things that hadn't been given names to before. But I, I think trauma is has really been the kind of the preoccupation of psychotherapy over the the last ten, fifteen, or or twenty years. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it was avoided, or why do you think there was a has been a greater focus more recently? I think. Part of it was the effect of the, the Vietnam War and, and all the soldiers who came back and who were messed up in one way or another. And it became 
a source, a focus of attention, of trying to understand what was going on, why were so many people incapacitated by their experience in combat? What was it? It didn't seem like the the um, the tools of psychotherapy were uh, uh, provided a way of understanding what was going on, why why uh, trauma seemed to be so disabling. Why was it so difficult to move to move past it? And and uh, so that and and it also became kind of a political issue, also, of just uh, focusing attention on um, what uh, of here was something that was ignored. So it was, became a kind of a social issue amongst other things that that was that we were trying to forget something. We had, in a sense, the the war had it had been a kind of a a, uh, a trauma in itself that we had tried to ignore. So the, so the field was uh, became more socially engaged in that sense of trying to address something that um, just had just hadn't gotten the attention that it that it that it deserved. I also think about the power of naming something trauma. Exactly, having a vocabulary for under, understanding this this inner world that we just hadn't had a vocabulary for and uh, so so that was part of it language was a huge part of it so we developed uh, the language of psychology uh, developed enormously over this these last 20 30 years of uh, diagnostic terms uh, ways of Understanding the nuance of emotion, uh, it, it became more of a thing where you would talk about your own, your own experience, uh, your own psychological experience, your own inner experience. Became uh, there was the the field provided a language. It kind of built on itself. The field pr- provided a language for understanding the kind of the, the pain of just developing a self and uh, dealing with family relationships and so on. That's interesting because when I think about the fields of psychology, I think about right the way it's evolved over the last hundred years and in many ways has developed on itself, has deepened its practice, there's more of a science behind it, um, that it's going in a direction that probably is more helpful for people. But then I also think of the role of trends Right. And like things going in and out of fashion in and out of style in psychotherapy, some of which may be just as effective as other methods. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that, because I the way that you're describing it is it seems like, you know, it's evolving in a way that we that we know more and it's building upon itself. But yeah, what are your thoughts on like some things that are just vogue or popular things that go in and out of out of fashion? I think there are things like. Uh... IFS that seem to that seem natural that seem organic this idea that we have parts so this a, a kind of a conception that we're not unified we're not a monolithic self but we have there are these different different parts that seem to um, figure largely in our inner life. There's certain certain parts 
that we're preoccupied with, that we, um, uh, maybe if I knew a little bit more about part psychology, I might have been more helpful to my mother back in the day. Um, but I, I think there, there's, uh, there are certain ways of understanding how different parts interact with each other, um, that we have many parts, that, that uh, an understanding and an acceptance of parts, that we're not a single thing, that we're not a, uh, a unified, a unitary thing. Uh, I, I think that's, I don't know if that's a trend, I think that's kind of an understanding and it fits in with an under, the, the way in which, um, the, the way the brain operates, and the way there, there are different parts to the brain, different components of the brain, different selves. It's a, a continuing exploration. Part of it is kind of the popularity. You kind of, uh, the, the more you see people getting interested in a particular way of looking at things, the more it tells you something about how people experience themselves organically as this, this, this is who I am, this is what identity is, this is what selfhood is all about. Uh, and, there, and there are certain ways of talking that feel more natural, certain ways of talking about oneself, about one's identity, that seem more natural than others. And, and I, I think that's, that's kind of how a field evolves. So something I was thinking about is that some of my favorite articles in The Networker have been interviews with therapists where you've asked them about their personal experiences, what it's like to be a therapist, their personal experiences in therapy. And I'm curious, in doing those interviews, what you've learned about what it's like to be on the other side of the couch, right? What it's like to be the therapist. I guess there are a few things about that. So in, in the conversation, you know, what makes for a good conversation, something that has life to it. And so a big part of that is discovering something that uh, is of interest to you, that you, that clicks, that becomes, that, that then becomes a kind of a, a, a spark within the, the conversation and becomes a source of connection. So, that, so that's, it seems like that's uh, the, the heart of a good interview is what's interesting here? What is it that get, captures your attention? The people who were interviewed were, were more interesting than others, more surprising, more opened up, opened up something that I, that, uh, I, I had never thought about before. Yeah. What were some of the surprises along the way? You said sometimes there were things that were really surprising to hear. It, I mean, it was always... Um, surprising to be come across a therapist who was self-critical like Mnuchin. I guess he was my the most fun interview. So Mnuchin worked at Wiltwick, he, he worked with poor kids, he worked with kids who uh, weren't particularly into talk therapy. His admission uh, that he thought that 
uh, he had the solution to poverty. He, he uh, you, know, the, you know, he wrote the, his, that first book was The Family of the Slums. And so the idea was that you could kind of cu- cure people of their dysfunction uh, and you could cure the social ills of, of poverty through family therapy. And so the way the, the way that he put it was there was family therapy and then the, there was all the, the various social pathologies. And the fact of the matter is family therapy wasn't strong enough, wasn't powerful enough. It didn't it didn't have a, an, an enough of a of a force to make a, a difference in people's lives. And that his honesty about that and his admission that it was a, that uh, family therapy was a limited tool was just impressed me his recognition of the, the, the kind of the, the limitations of therapy as a tool you, you know it could, it, it could do only so much what have you learned from um, from therapists that you've interviewed about what it's like for them to be a therapist that uh, being a therapist is, a, is a, pretty, a pretty interesting way to make a living. That you're able to use yourself. And as you get older and get more experience, you get better and better at that. You begin to trust your, your therapeutic wisdom more and more. You become, you, you, you question yourself less. You become more and more able to, to follow your your impulse and your intuition about what's going on. It's, it seems as if it's, you don't really come of age as a therapist until you get into your, your 50s or your 60s. <laughs> we have a while to go. <laughs> and, and so, well, so, so, some of you have a head start. You, 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 <laughs> you, you, have, a, you have a pretty good sense of, uh, you, you, you seem to have the natural materials, Sina. But I'm, I'm more and more impressed where people are less and less playing at being a therapist and more and more like they really have become they really are a therapist it's they're they're it you know i and it but it, it seems to come at a relatively advanced stage of things you're not you're not play acting at it anymore i also look at people who who write in the field or who've become big thinkers in the field of psychotherapy have something to say and offer or, 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 you know, clinicians that, that, um, are teachers. It's like careers take off too in the fifties and sixties. It is later because there is a certain kind of foundational wisdom that's necessary exactly. to, to that point. Yeah. To have that bird eyes perspective, it's hard to come up with theories. It's hard to really understand humans until you kind of see them evolve and sort of see, um, see differences it's hard to see differences when your sample size is small (laughs) right but but it's it's so interesting because i i do feel like the last few years you know it's like you learn all of this foundational clinical material in grad school and then the next few years afterwards you're trying to unlearn half of what you took in right and and, yeah and people have a very different way of dealing with boundaries as they as they move on yeah yeah and and they feel more comfortable they get looser you know, that tired phrase of being themselves. And what, I'm curious what you've experienced being in therapy as a patient. 
I'm curious what that's been like to be a patient, write about it, and also be have the clinical background at the same time. You know, the, the things that seemed the less talky, the less old-fashioned talky, the therapy, the more valuable it is. So it, it just things that felt visceral, that had emotion to them, that I really felt like I was reacting in a visceral way to what was going on, where I was kind of, I was, it, was, it was like entering into a new world, a world that I didn't, that I hadn't experienced before. Having the opportunity to experience emotion and reactions and, and not be constrained by the kind of the, the, the normal constraints of um, just, just social behavior. So yeah, th- things that seemed more somatic seemed to have more emotion to them. Those seemed to me to be more powerful to have to make more make more of a difference for me, uh, and had more learning to them than things that um, felt more like by the book therapy or more like the the psychotherapy that I learned. In graduate school, I, I never, I don't think that made that much of a difference. I love what you're saying, and I, I totally resonate with that. I think, especially as therapists, it's like we come to therapy already with so much insight. I feel like therapists' go-to defenses are oftentimes the intellectualization of our history. Like we we know it, and we go there easily. Mm-hmm. And so to have someone push you into that experiential place, into that place that really moves you. Um, that's where, where I see healing happens as well. Working mm-hmm. with the body is so big right now. Yeah, because I, I, I think that that's the acknowledgement of the widespread acknowledgement uh, that, there's, that, that, that has an impact, uh, a deeper impact than the, the, the uh, more traditional talky therapy, the talking about that's why group therapy and couples therapy, I think, is also so effective, even for the person on an individual Something's level, happening it, in the something's moment. Something's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's in the room. It's in the here yeah. and now. So do you have any advice to people that are interested in becoming therapists? I mean, you, you carry all this wisdom through the years, what it's like to be on both sides of the couch. What advice would you have for people interested in becoming therapists? I... Th- Think the to give yourself the opportunity to, to to see people who do interesting stuff to get exposed to um, a kind of a, a range of different approaches and particularly things that as as we're saying that seem visceral that involve some risk that involve get get out of kind of a straitjacket of talk therapy but the uh, and to kind of to see people in action who um, to really do seem at home with themselves and who are able to operate in a way that where they really uh, seem they've entered into that phase of their career where they're integrated and where they're bringing together their kind of the 
the kind of this this somatic element of it and the intuitive element of it, um, uh, and and finding a certain kind of freedom to explore and to um, uh, move move out of kind of a kind of a strict and kind of intellectual way of of working. And who are you most excited about or curious about right now in the field? I think the people who impress me most are the people who really live what they're doing. So someone like um, Dick Schwartz, he that's him. He is IFS. That's he lives it in his life. He's in his transparency in his way of dealing in relationships, in dealing with awkward situations. Um, I, it, so he, he really feels like he is, he is a therapist. I, I think, um, to mention somebody who's familiar to both of us, Mom uh, has become more and more somebody who I, I think she's really living out what it means to be a therapist, and she's not just playing it. I keep being impressed with how she's continues to develop and how she's more and more of herself in the in the work that she does. I'm in, I'm interested in uh, Gabor Mate yeah. uh, and his ability to uh, his sharpness, his ability to get to the heart of the matter, his ability to in a sense like a like a very good editor, somebody who can uh, listen, listen to and find kind of uh, what really cl- listen very closely to what people are saying and either challenge them or help them to, to develop what it is that, that something that's going to take them to the next level. It's going to help them to move into whatever it is that's going to uh, open up new, new ideas, new, new, uh, a new sense of openness, a new sense of possibility in their lives. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. People who really have, who are really, I don't know, embodied in their work. Mm-hmm. They, uh, yeah. Any thoughts about where the field is headed? It, uh, it surprised me that I thought at first it was going to, it was going to fade. It was going to. Uh, there'll be less and less interest in talking about the self and the psyche. And there's so many distractions. There are so many things that are going on in people's lives. But I, I think this kind of that um, there's a curiosity about these kind of deeper conversations and a sense of exploring who one is and what's what's going on and 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 this notion of trauma uh, these experiences of trauma that people have had in their lives uh, so I, it, it feels like it's very vibrant it feels like it's very uh, it, it's 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 continues to to grow and to to flourish uh, and and there's a an interest in psychotherapy and just in the, that experience of being listened to and being um, uh, exploring and understanding that 
is is not something that is is diminishing in the least. It's something that's uh, moving on, and, and and it is something that's continuing to develop. Any future directions for Psychotherapy Networker coming up? I think we have you know just a lot of young people who have just working on the magazine now, who are. Are seeing a connection between therapy and social issues, uh, and and putting therapy in in context and keeping it from being just something that a you know some boomer started um, you know forty years ago. But I'm just impressed with um, our our staff now and and uh, their interest in issues like like race and anti-racism and their issues like the new roles and for uh, the, the the for in therapy how therapists are uh, exploring new roles and approaching being a therapist in a different in a different context so it, it, it feels like it has a lot of life to it it feels like it has a lot of that it, it, it's going to continue to grow and, and, and to, to develop. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, uh, th- th- this was fun. Thank you, this was lovely. I'll have to take some notes. You guys are great interviewers. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time.